There are many places in the, in the Bible, especially in the Gospels, where we read about Jesus teaching a lot of things. Probably those of you who are familiar with the Bible and, and the stories, especially in the Gospels, uh, when, when I mention Jesus teaching, you might think of parables. Um, Jesus taught a lot of parables. And those were instances uh, where Jesus had a group of people in front of him. Usually it was either his disciples or it was uh, a large group of people, say at the Sermon on the Mount or other times, when he would teach and, and primarily explain about the kingdom of God and what it was to live under God's rule and God's reign. And many of the parables are about those kinds of things. There's also, well, times when Jesus encountered people, real-life encounters that are recorded in the Gospels. And the writers of the Gospels included them to be instructive for us as well, to help us understand what Jesus was teaching and and how he was interacting with them. And one of these such places where there's a real-life interaction, a real-life encounter between Jesus and another person is in the book of Matthew. And I invite you to, if you have your Bible, to turn there. Book of Matthew, chapter 19. As you can see in your bulletin, the text is Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 30. I doubt, for a lot of you, I doubt this is a, you know, an unknown story. You've probably heard it many times. Just to provide a little uh, background here, Jesus is um, apparently um, walking along or on his way somewhere, and a man comes up to him. Again, it's a real-life encounter. This is not a parable that Jesus is teaching. This is something that really happened between Jesus and a person that approaches him. And the man has, to him and to all of us, an extremely important question that he wants to ask Rabbi Jesus, the one who is giving such fantastic insights into what it means to follow God. So let's read here verses uh, 16 through 30 at this encounter that Jesus has with this man. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? That's his key question. Verse 17. And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. 
When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Real life encounter with a real life guy with a real life question <laughs> that Jesus uses that, as you can see, uh, to teach something not only to the man, the young man, but he also uses this opportunity to teach something to his disciples and also to us. So if you will, for the next few minutes, let's just kind of work our way through the first part of that passage that I read. And that'll bring us, I think, to the main point of what Jesus is getting at in all of this passage that I just read. So this young man, actually, uh, this man comes up in verse 16 to Jesus saying, teacher, what's his question? You know, what do I have to do to inherit, or to have, it says in my Bible, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, before we get on our, you know, theological hobby horse, and before we start, you know, saying, you know, you don't get it, do you? We'll get to that. But I just want to point out that this man has something going for him. He has actually a concern about the things of eternity, does he not? Well, I mean, why else would he come and approach Jesus with this question? He's concerned about his eternal condition. He's concerned about the things of God. And he wants to be able to be in the kingdom of God. That's what, And so... Jesus didn't say this to him, but on another occasion, uh, he told someone, you know, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And he might have perhaps said the same thing to this guy. You're not far from the kingdom of God. There's a concern there. Now, as that, sadly, is not always the case in our culture today, is it? I mean, how many of the friends and the people that you know on a... Uh, you know, the ones that you know on a regular basis, the ones you interact with, how many of them would you say 
have this kind of same concern for the eternal, their eternal condition. In our world today, you know, we're so distracted by things. And I think that, you know, I'm going to pick on technologies and stuff like that. Um, there's, they're good. Phones and, you know, all internets and Facebooks and all those things. They're good and they have their place. But don't they tend to distract us from the things that are really ultimately important? If we get out of perspective, we can lose sight of hearing from God because all we're trying to do is hear from our friends on Facebook. And we can, we can be so brainwashed by playing video games and watching movies that we can go for days and weeks, months, perhaps even years, without even considering what's behind or in the heart of the man who's asking this question here in this text, right? What do I have to do to have eternal life? So I think one way that the devil, you know, he'll take anything, anything that we'll give him, and he'll twist it to distract us from the things of God. So I just want to, in this man's defense, okay, I just want to say, He's got a genuine good concern. And Jesus acknowledges that. Okay? And that's not a bad thing for any of you to have the concern about you know, your eternal condition. So he asks, what do I have to do? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now you might be a little puzzled at Jesus' response here. What does Jesus say to him? Why do you ask me about what is good? Okay, that wasn't exactly what he was expecting, probably. And Jesus goes on there, if you would, uh, there's only one who is good. By the way, just a little sidebar in there. What's Jesus talking about there? Why are you asking me what's good? There's only one who is good. Well, there's only one who is good, and that is God. So if you're asking about what is good, then you need to be asking God about what is good, and Jesus is God. It's, it's a subtle way of Jesus trying to, around the, the shed, so to speak, get the guy to realize that he is God, because he's the only one who can answer this question. But then Jesus goes on, like a very good teacher that Jesus is. is. Jesus is. Some of you are teachers, and know how to uh, teach and lead children and, and adults in teaching. What do you want to do in a teaching situation? When you want somebody to learn new material, where do you start? You start where they are at, right? You start with what they know, and then you use that to work to what they need to learn. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He starts where the man is at. He says, if you want to have life here, then if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. He starts with what the man knows. Every Jew knew all of the commandments. And they knew that the commandments were the way to eternal life. Or that they would find life if they would obey them. And so the man says, well, which ones do I have to to uh, obey. And Jesus lists a sampling, uh, mostly of what we would call the Ten Commandments there. You shall not murder, um, 
do not commit adultery, honor your father and mother, and he, he slips in, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus is working with this young man to help him understand a very important point that we'll get to in just a moment. The man says, I've kept all of these, but I know there's something that I still lack. You're not telling me everything, Jesus. And Jesus says to him, of course, if you want to be perfect, then go sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. And the man couldn't do it. Why did he turn away? What does it say? Why did he turn away? Because he had great possessions. He had great possessions. What is it that the Lord was trying to get this rich, wealthy, younger man to realize? Could he obey the commandments? Well, no, not really. Jesus was trying to show him that he actually was, that he held, he had in his heart an idol. He had in his heart the idol of wealth and possessions. And that was keeping him from following the commands. You know, we know that Romans 3.23 says what? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus is showing this man that there is a point in the law that he cannot follow or he has violated and that he has broken the law and therefore he's not qualified for eternal life. So the young man, I mean, this is to me perhaps one of the most, I don't know, the saddest scenes in the New Testament. Just, Just picture this scene. This man is talking with Jesus himself. How would you like to do that? I mean, face to face. You can do that, by the way. But, you know, Jesus was there physically in person. Talking to him. And Jesus holds out his hand. Just just get rid of your possessions. All those holdings. Don't. He's not talking about just write your tithe check out for 10% of your income. This man had a deeper issue. You understand that? He had, Jesus was telling him to basically liquidate his assets, be rid of all those things, get rid of that that's holding you. And then Jesus says, do that, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Jesus is holding his hand out to this, come and follow me. And the man just, he can't do it. And he walks away. Don't let that happen to you. Don't let that happen to you. To me, this is one of the, the saddest places in the scriptures because the man is so close to following Jesus, and yet he cannot do it. He can't do it. And so Jesus uses this, uh, this scene here in the next few verses. He turns to his disciples And uses this whole scenario, this sad scene, as an object lesson for the disciples. 
So Jesus says to his disciples in verse 23, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And of course, their thinking is more along the lines that blessing of riches equals God's favor. So how can it be that it's difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? A rich person obviously has God's favor, so their world is starting to turn upside down a little bit on them, and they're beginning to wonder, what are you talking about, Jesus? Only with difficulty. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it's impossible because of what's in the heart of those who have great possessions and wealth. Let me just stop there for one, for one second. We in our culture here in the United States, you may not think of yourself as rich, but let me tell you from the position that I serve in now, we are extremely wealthy compared to 90% of the rest of the world. You may not think of yourself as a wealthy person because you're comparing yourself to your neighbor or the person down the street. But overall, we have, a, we have great possessions. And we're not that far off from the situation that this, the young, the, the ruler was in. We need to, in our, in our lives, in our situation here in the United States, we need to continually hold our possessions with an open hands to the Lord and say, they really belong to you because we do not want them to keep us from following the Lord. And they will. Like I said, the devil will use anything. So let me just offer that as a, a short kind of warning to all of us that possessions will own you if you let them when we want the Lord to own us, for sure. So let's get back to what Jesus was saying to his disciples. It's harder through. It's harder for, uh, for a camel, or it's easier for the, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, and it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. There's so much in the heart that's, that's keeping them from following the Lord. When the disciples heard this, I think rightly so, they were greatly astonished, saying, well, then who can be saved? And now we come to the whole point of what Jesus is talking about. And this whole time, really, with, with the young man and now with his disciples, Jesus says, Jesus looks at them in response to the question, who can be saved? And he says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. What's Jesus saying there? You know, he would say to the rich young man, there isn't anything that you can do to enter into eternal life. There isn't anything, any deed that you can perform, which is what he wanted to, to be told. There isn't anything that you can accomplish so that you will earn your way into eternal life. There isn't anything that can be done that way because we're all sinners. That's the message that the young man needed to know. And Jesus had essentially broken him realizing to realize that 
He could not follow all of the commandments. He could not do anything. He couldn't be good enough to earn eternal life. And so he, Jesus turns to the, to the disciples and, and he tells them, look, there isn't anything that anyone can do to earn the life. It is only what God can give. It is only by grace that you have eternal life. And Jesus uses those words uh, saying, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Salvation, eternal life, is not something that we can come by on our own. And we need to be reminded of this over and over and over again. And Jesus' disciples needed to hear it as well. And they were astonished at what Jesus was telling them. There's nothing that we can do. You see, God doesn't relate to us in the way we think he ought to relate to us. Let's just be honest. He doesn't relate to us the way we think he ought to relate to us. We want God to relate to us on the basis of a points system, what I'll call a points system. You know, we think God ought to relate to us kind of like when we were in school and the teacher gives out, you know, an exam or something and we we have a spelling test, let's just say, and we do our spelling test and we turn it in and, you know, Johnny next to me, he gets, he gets like three or four of them wrong. So good job, Johnny. That's okay. You know, you'll do better next time. But me, I got them all right. And we want God to look at our exam and say, yes, I approve of you fully because you got all on your exam right. That's the point system, accumulating points. We want God to, we want God to relate to us kind of like the way our credit cards work. I mean, how many of you have credit cards where if you, you, know, you use them so often for certain things, you'll accumulate bonus points? You know what I'm talking You know what I'm talking about. You accumulate mileage points or bonus points or whatever. And if we, we use our good deeds... And we keep using them and using them. We accumulate bonus points with God. So that he's going to look at us and say, Wow, your good deeds are way more than anything bad you've ever done. I approve of you, Jeff. I approve of you. That's the way we want God to relate to us. But God does not relate to us on this system of points. He relates to us through his grace, from start to finish. And that's what Jesus wants to drive home clearly in this passage to the young man and to his disciples. God does not relate to you on the basis of any kind of point system. He relates to you on the basis of his grace. And he does that for those who need to enter into the kingdom of heaven it is by grace you are saved, not of works. And he continues to relate to us, not on the basis of a point system, but based on his grace for our entire lives, for all eternity. Listen to what as it goes on here. Peter speaks up. Verse, what is that? 27. Peter said in reply, 
Now, who's Peter? You know, you can always count on Peter to speak up and put into words what everybody else is thinking, right? We, we know people like that. They're, they're going to say it. They're going to bring it out there. Put out the, what do they call that? The, um, you know, verbalize the, the elephant in the room kind of thing. So Peter says to Jesus, um, Sir, we have left everything and followed you. Now, why is Peter saying this? Just remember, Peter and the other disciples were there witnessing that encounter with the young man. And they saw him, they saw Jesus extend his hand and invite him to come follow. And they saw the young man say, I can't do it. I have, you know, the possessions are in my heart too much. And so Peter says, Ooh, we left everything. We did it. We did it, Lord. We left everything behind. And we came and, and we followed you. What's, what's in it for us? I mean, we did what that young man would not do. And, and they had. If you think about Peter and his brother Andrew, who were they before they came to know Jesus? Fishermen. And the Bible says, and, and the same for James and John, they left their business behind. I mean, their livelihood. They set it behind and they followed Jesus on the daily trek from city to city to learn from Rabbi Jesus. Peter also had a wife, we know that. Now, certainly he didn't divorce his wife, but I'm sure that he, you know, he left her behind and went on the road to be with Jesus. There was a lot that they had given up. They had given up everything, and that was very true. So naturally, and I think Peter actually speaks for a lot of us. Wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't you perhaps have the same question? Maybe not all of us, but some of us. We, we might say, I have given up a lot for you, Lord. I have. You know, I've, I've made decisions in my life to, to set aside earning a better income because I knew that wasn't what you wanted for me. I've, I've uh, made decisions uh, to, to put you first and to put possessions behind me. I've made other decisions. I've made sacrifices. Even sacrifices, Lord, that you only know about because I have wanted to follow you and put you before me. If I think we're honest, many of us would probably be a little bit like Peter there and say, yeah, I, you know, what's, is, there, is it really worth it? That's what Peter's asking. Is, was it worth it that we did it? I mean, is there anything in it for us? So how does Jesus respond to that? Well, he reassures Peter and he reassures us. Basically, Jesus says, yes, it is worth it. It is going to be worth it. It is worth it now. And it is going to be worth it in, eternal, in the eternal kingdom more than you can ever imagine. That's essentially what Jesus is telling Peter and, and the rest of them there. As he says, truly, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you have followed me, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, brothers or sisters, or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Jesus says, it's, it's going to be worth it all. And that's reassuring. Isn't that comforting to know? Lord, we, you know... We have made sacrifices, and 
The Lord knows those sacrifices that you have made. He knows the sacrifices that we have made. He knows what we have given up to follow him. I'm saying that we're standing before him bragging or boasting about all that we've done, but, but they're real sacrifices. And Jesus comforts us saying, hey, it is going to be worth I mean, it's going to be so worth it that on the other side of eternity, when you look back, you'll just wonder, why did I ever have those concerns? You know, why in the world did it ever bother me so much? How foolish I was at that time. But Jesus isn't done with his point here. There's one more verse, verse 30. Jesus slips that in there, and you might say, where does that fit in? But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Remember, he's talking to Peter and the other disciples. Because Jesus, although reassuring them that the sacrifices we have made, it will be worth it all, he wants us to remember, he wanted Peter to remember, that from start to finish, He relates to us on the basis of his grace. In other words, he's saying, Peter, and those of you who are asking, you know, what's in it for me? You're asking the wrong question. You're gone back to the way that you think God ought to relate to you. And we do this as Christians, don't we? We go back to thinking that God will operate and relate to us on the basis of the points system. Ooh, ooh. I, you know, I'm at church every Sunday. I read my Bible every day. I do this, I do that, I do that, da, da, da. Bonus points using my good deed credit card. And I'm, I'm accumulating all of those things for the Lord's favor. That's why Jesus says, but the, but, uh, But many who are first will be last and the last first. You know, when we we slip into thinking that God is going to relate to us somehow on the basis of our good deeds, even as Christians. And that's when we get into the danger zone. He wants to remind Peter and he wants to remind us that that will never happen. All those sacrifices that you've made are, are real. And it will be worth it. But eternal life and the worth itness, that's a new word, the worth itness of all of that is not because of what you have done, it's all because of what God has done for you from start to finish. And to really drive this point home for, for them and for us, we're not going to read the next parable that comes in chapter 20 if you're following in, in your Bible there. But I'll talk about it a little bit because it follows on exactly with the same point that Jesus is making. It's called the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Jesus launches right into this parable. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to Peter and the disciples, the followers, those who have been with Jesus now for a long time. For many of you and me, that's that's us as well. And Jesus just launches right into this. He says, okay, there was a... An owner of a vineyard, he went out very early in the morning and he hired all these people to work in his vineyard. And he said, I'm going to pay you a denarius. That was the 
standard wage, one day's wage for labor. And they said, okay, let's do that. So they went to work. He went back out a few hours later. He found more people to work. They said, I'll you know, work in my vineyard. I'll pay you whatever's right. So they did. He went back out again and he did the same thing. He went back out even again. And finally, he went back out at the 11th hour, almost basically the end of the work day, just like an hour before. And he said, what are you doing here? Come on and work in my vineyard. So they all went and they were all working there. At the end of the day, sundown, it was time to give the laborers their wages. And the owner said, all right, begin with those that were hired last. Hmm. What do these words come in? The, some who are last will be first, first last. Beginning with the last, let's make sure you give them you know, their wages, and then we'll give those that were hired first uh, their wages. So when the ones that were hired, they worked for only one hour. They came. The owner reaches into his pocket. I don't have a coin in my pocket. Um, and he gives them a denarius. And they say, oh, thanks. And off they go. And he gives everyone a denarius. So when the workers who were hired first, I mean, and they've worked all day long in the field, what are they thinking? Man, that's not fair. Surely he's going to give us something more. So when they come up, here's your denarius. What? How can that be? And they're angry with him. And the owner of the the vineyard says, don't I have the right to do what I want with all my own money? Or are you upset with me because I'm generous? You agreed to work for a denarius. I'm not, I'm not penalizing you in any way. Now, what's, what's Jesus' point in all that parable? You know, listen, remember who he was talking to. He was talking to those who had been with him for a long time now. He was talking to Peter and his disciples. And at the end of that parable, he comes right around... Chapter 20, verse 16. What does he say again? So the last will be first and the first last. What Jesus wants to tell them is God doesn't relate to you on the points system. It's right there in the parable. He relates to you based on his grace. He will, as illustrated by that, the, the young man, to enter the kingdom, he needed God's grace. That's the only way he could get in. And those of us who have followed the Lord for many years, perhaps, our relationship with the Lord continues to be and, and will always continue to be based on God's grace to us. We can never earn it. We want to slip back into, as workers in the church, just like in that parable, I did this Oh, I've been there, and so-and-so, and that person over there is new, or they've not been committed like I have. I expect to get more. And Jesus says, that's not how God operates. He relates to us on the basis of grace, always. And that's just the simple, but difficult, perhaps, message that we need to absorb and, and uh, live out that our relationship with the Lord is always on the basis of what he has done for us. 
So let's not compare ourselves to one another. We always do that, don't we? And then we always get in trouble when we do that. Jesus doesn't want us to do that. Because when we realize that everything flows from him, we have no right to compare to others. It's all a gift from him in the first place. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes your teaching is difficult and challenges us because we have our notions about how things ought to be. Thank you for your grace. On the one hand, we are challenged and convicted because we confess that we feel like we somehow earn your favor, and that's wrong of us, for there's nothing that we can ever do. On the other hand, it's a great comfort and a peace to know that it doesn't depend on us, but it all depends on you and your favor to us, and you have given us everything in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.